Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 113 of the Speaking Club podcast. I wanted to share a quote this week. I heard it on a Disney film called Stargirl, which is based on a book of the same name by a guy called Jerry Spinelli. I heard similar sort of thing in other ways and other contexts, but I really like the simplicity of how Stargirl said this, and it's certainly helping me at the moment. Winning doesn't make you happy. It's being happy that makes you win. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey! So, this is going to be a great episode, I think really useful at the moment. So, about 20 years ago, one event triggered Colette Etheridge to have an episode of high anxiety that turned her into someone she didn't recognise and didn't like. Her mind wouldn't switch off and she was lost in a world of paranoia, behaving like a child and doing things that today she says she's ashamed of. It took her four months to beat that anxiety back, but it's an illness that she's still managing today. Now, though, she uses her experience and her years of training to help others conquer anxiety issues, including things like depression, fear and phobias. And in this show, you're going to get some amazing tips for managing general anxiety and any specific situations you find challenging, whether that's public speaking to presenting online or on video. Although we recorded this show before Corona happened, so much of what Colette shares will also help if you're struggling to cope with the worry and impact that this situation is having in our lives. But... Before I switch over to the interview, which I know you're going to love, I wanted to let you know about a live masterclass that I'm running in two weeks' time on Thursday, 23rd of April. It's called From Stage to Screen, The Five Secrets to Presenting Successfully Online. And I've put this together because I've had quite a few people ask me about what they should be doing differently if they're presenting on a webinar or video. Although it's a paid event, I've tried to keep it as affordable as possible so that nothing stops you from getting this teaching. So for just $27, you're going to get everything you need for successfully making the transition to sharing your message remotely with confidence and impact. So you can book your space over at saraharcher.co.uk slash five secrets. That's five F-I-V-E secrets. And if you have any confidence issues about presenting online, whether it's webinars, workshops or video, you're going to love this. Uh, Go and grab your space now. Cool. Let's head over to the interview. Colette Etheridge, welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. Now, you've had such an interesting journey um, and it really ties in with what you do today. And I wanted to start with that. So 20 years ago... You, you know, you've admitted it's on your website. You were in a dark space yourself. Can you tell me about that? What it was like, what it was about and so on? Yeah, so um, it links in. So I'm going to tell you this bit because it links in. So my journey actually started when I was five years old. Um, I had a, a traumatic experience when I was five years old. Didn't really pay much attention to that. Um, and it's, it's relevant for a reason. So when I was 23, about 23, um, I had a year of huge events and I thought I was like some kind of superwoman because I was just breezing through it all and nothing was a problem and people were saying, wow, these really stressful events and you're just coping with it all. Um, and I was, I was uh, naively really proud of myself for, for coping with it. Fast forward about three months after all of that had happened and life had settled and I was looking after my nephew who was about two years old at the time Um, and as I was looking after him a mantelpiece which wasn't attached to the wall fell near him. 
in my head, it nearly killed him. I don't think it did. He didn't even flinch from what he was doing. I don't think it was even that close to him. But in my head, I nearly killed him. Um, and I couldn't move from that point. Um, and so that began this, this really long journey of significant anxiety that I went through. So I cried nonstop for two weeks. And I kept saying to my mum and I kept saying to his mum, I nearly killed him. And, and that's really awful. And I'm really sorry. And I kept saying, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I went to the doctor because I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't work out what was what was going on for me. And he he was fine. He said, "Don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. It's you know, it's okay." I begged, begged, begged for medication, and he said, "No, you don't need medication. I'm not going to give that to you." Um, he said, "Give it a couple of weeks. Go back into work, and you'll be fine." I don't think I knew what was going on for me. I just thought I was slowly losing the plot because I couldn't stop crying. Went into work as an introductory thing just to say hello to people. Um, and I don't know if I had a panic attack. I don't know what happened. But what followed on from that trip into my workplace at the time was a significant period of heightened anxiety. The reason that I say the trauma that uh, happened when I was five is important is because essentially in heightened anxiety, what I did was I reverted back to that five-year-old. Oh. And and so I needed, even though I'd only been married for, I don't know, two months, three months, my husband was of no use to me at all because I needed my mum in the same way that a five-year-old needs her mum. Oh, right. Yeah. So I, I just had this period of behaviours that as somebody who is no longer living with that, I'm quite ashamed of. I was really manipulative and controlling of, of my mum, essentially, because I needed her to be my safe person. I needed her to fix things for me. Um, I couldn't go into to Gloucester, but actually I could go anywhere else. So I, I was having a lovely time going to um, other local areas to me, but I couldn't go into Gloucester, which is where my place of work was. Um, and the reason I couldn't go into Gloucester was because every time I tried, I'd have a panic attack. Um, so I just had this this period of time where I felt like I was completely losing control of, of myself and of my mind. And I think that was the key thing for me. And my mind just didn't shut off. So um, I would have thoughts that would go round and round in my mind, but they were not logical. It wasn't a logical thinking pattern. It wasn't rational. Um, occasionally, I would think to myself, I feel okay. I can go and do, go to the shop or I can do something. I would leave my house in my car and about 100 metres down the road, I'd have to turn my car around and go back home again because I couldn't do it. I couldn't cope with it. So it was just, it was a really horrible place to be. It was, it was, it was really quite scary because I didn't know what was happening to me. I, I always say, although I say I behaved in ways I say are not uh, particularly acceptable, I always say it was the anxiety that made me behave in that way. So being quite controlling, quite manipulative, really demanding. Little bits of paranoia were, were seeping in in terms of if my mum couldn't come to me straight away, I would assume she was talking about me to somebody else. Um, so really negative place. And that's funny because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, we've only really sort of seen each other now but you certainly don't come across like I mean I, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm a good reader judge of character but you don't come across in any way like you've just described you seemed you seem friendly and open you're smiling and you know warm rather yeah. than all of that stuff gosh yeah. that's so interesting and but this wasn't what I mean you you had anxiety about what it wasn't work related at all was it no. So once I had recovered and eventually gotten back into work because that took a lot of effort. Um, one of my work colleagues, and she described it perfectly, she said, all of those events, it was like you were running towards a brick wall. Mm. And everything stopped, that was like you hit in the brick wall and falling. So my anxiety, I think, came as a result of those, those big events that had happened, that chain of events. I think that's what, that put me into that really emotional place. I think the trauma from my early childhood was what made me behave like a five-year-old. Gosh, that's really interesting how, how the mind works. And I know you said it took four months to make 
the change you wanted to. What was that change and how did you make it happen in the end? So um, the change essentially was just to go back to my life as it had been. Mm -hmm. Um, It probably took a lot of determination for my mum rather than for me, because I think I, not really being aware of what I was doing, would have stayed in that place for a lot longer. Um, But my mum encouraged me to to go out with her um, and eventually she got me back into to Gloucester. So that was probably the, the hardest thing for me to do was to be able to go back into Gloucester. Um, and it took, I think it was three and a half months before I was able to do that. I remember our, our first trip into Gloucester. Um, so I had driven so that I'd have control. We drove, we parked. Um, we went down from the multi-story car park into the shops. Um, we stayed for what felt like at least half an hour. And I said to my mum, I can't do this anymore. I need to go and I need to go now and ran back to the car. By the time we got to the car to pay for the uh, parking, the the little man that sat in the hut back in those days um, said, don't worry, you've only been 10 minutes. Don't worry about it. Um, And so in total, from parking the car to leaving the car park, we'd only been 10 minutes. I would have sworn blind we were at least half an hour, possibly longer. And the physical impact on me was that for the rest of that day, I was shattered. I was absolutely shattered. Gosh. And is, was it like during this period, like you were almost observing yourself as well sometimes? No, I don't think it, I wouldn't have said it was like I was observing myself. I would have said I was so living in me that I was unable to observe anybody else or anything else it was absolutely about me and nobody else mattered um so for example I can remember calling my mum over to my house and she was good enough to come every time I called her um and then because I couldn't cope with her talking so so because the noise of her talking irritated me because I couldn't cope with the noise I would shout her down and essentially tell her to stop talking oh my goodness your uh, mum sounds like a saint to me. <laughs> she, she, absolutely. <laughs> she just couldn't have, have been better in terms of, of how she supported me. I have to say my manager at the time was also brilliant. She had a friend who also suffered with anxiety and she knew from a work point of view exactly what to do in terms of how much interaction I needed and how much to leave me alone. So she, and when I said to her, I feel really bad because I'm able to go to different places and have coffee, but I can't come into work. She would very clearly tell me that's part of your recovery. So don't worry. It's absolutely fine. Oh, wow. It was amazing as well. That's really enlightened because, you know, I have a a background in HR before when I was in corporate. And it's not often that you find managers or even companies that are that understanding um, and patient. Yeah, I have to say... Um, At the time when I worked, I was working for the Gloucester Police Station at the time. Um, Knowing the other managers, I'm not sure that anybody else would would have understood it the way that she did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it helped she had a friend who had anxiety. But even little things like if she was on the phone to me. So one of the things, one of my um, tells, I guess, that my anxiety was high would be that my breathing would become quite erratic. Um, and she would even be able to pick that up on the phone and she'd even say, I can hear your breathing. I'm going to end the call now. Um, you can just call me back when you're ready to. Wow. It was amazing. Wow, she sounds brilliant. My goodness. Yeah. thing I should say about my mum, actually, because she was amazing and she supported me fantastically. About 15 years after my anxiety, she suffered with it herself. Oh. The words to me were... I thought I knew what you had gone through. I didn't have a clue. Oh, bless her. Goodness me. And she's okay now, is she? Yeah, yeah, she's fine now, yes. I presume you were able to help her way, or were you like, no, this is too close to me, I need to let someone else, or she just got through it on her own? She's she's probably from a generational point of view, from that era of, I'll go to the doctor and I'll see if they can give me some medication, but I don't need any other help. So she was very close down to, to any help at all, really. Oh, bless. So, so you went through all of this. You, you made some, you know, recovered um, to the point that you could sort of start living normally again. What made you decide to transition into becoming a counsellor yourself? Because it doesn't sound like in this journey that you haven't mentioned that you actually had counselling yourself. 
Um, so I didn't actually have a lot of counselling um, during that. So I had had counselling before that linked into the trauma from when I was five. I had experienced counselling. Um, when I was poorly myself with, with anxiety, the GP sent me from sessions with the psychiatric practice nurse. They were, because it was a GP-led thing, they were really short. So they were sort of 10, 15-minute sessions. Mm-hmm. And I only had about three or four of those. So there wasn't a lot. But I wouldn't have been able to engage with a counsellor in that moment because I wasn't ready to. So, I no, I had no counselling at that particular time. So, so then, so what was the trigger then? How did that happen? In terms of how did I then become? Yes, yeah. Interestingly, nothing at all to do with my own anxiety. Um, so fast forward a couple of years um, in the same job and I was managing a team um, and one of my team members was off work for about eight or nine months. We were never told why he was off or what was going on, but I was told on his return, I was responsible for his return to work. So when he, I, I, so I said, you need to give me something. I need to know what I'm dealing with. Um, they said, no, it's confidential. We can't give you any of that information. You'll have to get that from him. Um, and so when he came back, um, I'm a bit horrified knowing what his response was, but my words to him were, okay, so I need to do this return to work interview with you. We're going to do this every week, apparently. I don't know why you were off. You're going to have to tell me. So he, he told me he had made two suicide attempts um, and had been diagnosed with bipolar. Oh my goodness. Um, and so began a bit of a journey for me in terms of supporting him. And there was one session we were doing together. So he was self-harming quite a lot. Um, and he had said to me, I'm not going to self-harm anymore. I've thrown away all the tools I use for self-harming. And I said, that's great. And what about the one you've hidden? Um, and he looked at me and said, how do you know? And I said, I don't. I'm guessing. And he said, yeah, I do have one that's hidden. And I said, okay. And he said to me, even my own psychiatrist didn't ask me that question. You should go and become a counsellor. Ah, there you go. And so that's how I then, um, I didn't do it straight away, but but I think it, it sort of built and built within me. Well, it's nice to sort of give, get the validation before in a sense. <laughs> yeah. oh, nice. Okay, so... So on your website, and it's interesting because the way you describe it as well, and you know, when I was suffering, when I was ill with it, um, you do say that it, anxiety is an illness, whereas I, I'd always believed it was a state of mind because it's not a permanent situation. Have I got that wrong? Is it like any other illness that you can recover from? Like, I, I don't, is that, the, is that how you think of it? Yeah, so for me, I think it depends on what you call permanent, I suppose. So I work with clients who've, had anxiety since they were little and because they've never really worked through it still have it in adulthood um, so for me that's extended periods of time suffering with anxiety and I would say you're you're moving into very permanent states of anxiety at that point personal thinking is and I have nothing to back this up it is just my opinion once you've suffered with high anxiety you are more likely to suffer with it again so if Something that might worry another person is more likely to make somebody with high anxiety more anxious about it. Um, and little things will trigger. So I can give you an example of, of yeah. that. I had my hair cut and my hair was cut shorter than I would have liked it to have been cut. Now, I know what my trigger is. My trigger is because when I was about six, I was called a boy because I had short convinced that I looked like a boy because my hair was short. So this is a relatively sane person having high anxiety just because about three inches had been cut off her hair. Um, and I wanted to cancel clients. I wanted to hide away. I was really aware my breathing wasn't good. My stomach was really knotted. Um, and a number of people said, it's just hair. It will grow back. And if I'd never had anxiety, I think I would have been able to just go, yeah, you're right. But because I recognised where I was going, I recognised that feeling of anxiety and I knew it was becoming all-encompassing, I had to manage it in a very different way, which was to get hair extensions so that my hair looked long again. Oh my goodness. I tell the story in a training that I do and I'm really aware of how ridiculous it sounds because it's just hair. It's not that big a deal. 
but the anxiety it caused me and the way that it made me feel was just again that same out of control feeling that I'd had in my 20s that same I'm losing it here and I my only thought was about my hair I have to work with I say brave enough to work with a couple of clients but I'm really aware my focus was not on them but on my hair um it became all encompassing again and so I had to work out how to manage it so that I could go back to a healthy state of mind so I do think if you've suffered with high anxiety there will be triggers which can take you back into that place. I guess that's my, it, it's more permanent, therefore, and is, is an illness. So more, more like a chronic illness than an acute one, basically, is what you're saying. I think so, yeah. So I, I think there are some people who will just have quite acute episodes of it, maybe just one off and, and won't overly be affected again. So, so, so do you think that I, I don't know if, if you know even but if that thing hadn't happened when you were five do you think that you would be anxiety free or much less um affected by it um, I don't know what the answer is because in my happened when I was five I had counseling over and and I feel quite safe with what happened to me in terms of saying this horrible thing happened to me when I was five but it doesn't define me mm. Because I've done a lot of work in terms of managing that. The anxiety, there are definitely moments when it will define me. Mm. Gosh, gosh. Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm thinking about what questions I've got coming up. Um, is anxiety and phobias, are they different things? Because phobias can cause anxiety. Yeah. But I'm guessing that these are slightly different things to, to you know to what you had. Yeah, so when we look at anxiety, we'll look at all different um, arenas of anxiety. So we would look at phobias and we would put that under anxiety because, as you say, if uh, I'm frightened of pretty much everything. I'm frightened of heights. I'm frightened of things going fast. I'm frightened of pretty much everything. The dark climbs, you name it. I'm probably frightened of it. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm phobic of those things. They're not, they're not phobias. But if you're you're dealing with somebody who has a phobia of spiders, for example, there will be a real high anxiety around it, but it will be a very specific anxiety around a very specific element of something. Um, anxiety, we would look at social anxiety. Uh, we would look at um, PTSD and where that fits with anxiety. We would look at OCDs and where that's um, obsessional compulsive disorder and where that sits with anxiety. So it's just that it can show itself in lots of ways. Mine would have been a generalised anxiety. That's that's what it would have been diagnosed as. Gosh. And and what sort of problems, if you're able to say, are you working on with people on a day-to-day basis? I think because of the way my website is, I tend to get clients who have high anxiety and or high depression. And often the two will go together because if you're highly anxious and you're not able to function in a way you'd like to function, you are going to suffer some sadness alongside that. So you're going to suffer some depression alongside that. So they the two often go together. And if you've got some depression, you're going to have some anxiety along. So the two will often sit side by side. So so primarily I deal with anxiety and depression. I'm seeing um, PTSD and complex PTSD come in more and more. Um, possibly because I've had a trauma therapy training in the last couple of of years. And so it's now openly available, I suppose, on my website, which is why I'm seeing some some PTSD stuff coming in. But high, high anxiety levels is is what I would say to to the point that there's um, a lot of self-harm for the clients, a lot of suicidal thinking for the clients. Um, Functioning is, is becoming really difficult for them. So quite extreme cases then. Yeah. Yeah, I would say yes. But for whatever reason, not significant enough to, to be under the adult mental health team. So they have to seek private um, support. Wow, that's interesting. That's a whole other can of worms that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> today. Okay. So I know it's, it's, it's interesting to get your, your opinion on this. I think there is a correlation and, and I'm sure it's well documented that where our lives are so hectic and so public these days, um, 
there's a higher occurrence of anxiety. I don't know if that's true. That's just my opinion. I'm sure there's yeah. some some um, research somewhere. Given that's the case, what do you suggest is the best way for us to keep our minds healthy? I would agree with what you're saying. Um, I think we live very much in a 24-7 world. So um, when I was little, the news, I only ever remember the news being on at six o'clock, nine o'clock and 10 o'clock. Um, and, and we didn't have social media. So these things weren't being thrown at us all of the time. And you certainly didn't have photoshopping and all of those sorts of, of things. And so it, it feels like we had a much freer life um, when we were younger. And I think that sort of links into the fact that much younger people are now showing signs of having uh, significant mental health concerns. So we're seeing anxiety a lot more in younger children. Um, in terms of how we manage that, I think it's just the things that anybody would say to do. So um, self-care. So self-care is, is kind of my number one rule with clients. We have to do some self-care. That doesn't mean mindfulness or meditation. Um, it just means doing something for yourself. It's a very selfish act to do, but I think it's good to look after yourself. So that might just be having an extra long bath or sitting down and watching your favorite TV program or having a whole day of indulgence of, of watching a Netflix box set or something like that. But just that self-care is, is really, really important. Talking is really, really important. So I think we've forgotten how to talk to each other. We don't communicate with each other. We, you know, we sit and text each other if we're in the same house. We, we just don't do that communication. We, we don't sit around the evening, in the evening around the dinner table, the way that I used to when I was little. So, so you don't get to, to talk through your day and, and if something has gone not so well, but also things have gone well. So if something hasn't gone so well during your day, when I was little, I can remember us all sitting around the dinner table and talking about what had happened in the day and if it was good or if it wasn't so good. If we're not doing that, if we're not sitting at a table or if we're not just communicating with it, we hold on to it. And then the next day something else happens. And so we hold on to that. And the more we hold, the more difficult it is to talk to people. It, it feels like it becomes really, really difficult. Um, so I think communication is key. Self-care is key. And I think if you can meditate or practice mindfulness, brilliant. But I really struggle with the whole mindfulness slash meditation concept. Although I do talk about it to my clients all of the time, but I'm and I tell them I can't do it. <laughs> it's interesting because I was in uh, in the UK. We have a shop called WH Smiths, which is uh, a, a bookshop um, uh, amongst other things, and they had a book by Ruby Wax on on how, like she was kind of like you know mindfulness and meditation for people who are rubbish at it kind of thing like how you yes. can build it in without actually sort of sitting down um, yeah. I had a, a guest who was on the show recently who did a 10-day meditation and that, I'm just starting to dabble with this stuff but I can't really see how I would be able to do that at this point no and, and it blows my mind when I talk to people and they say they can do it I did, um, going back a couple of years, I had um, a suspected stroke um, and, and went to seek some help after that. And I was talking to a lady about meditation um, and how difficult I found it. And she said, how long are you trying to meditate for? And so I said, oh, not long, probably, I don't know, three, four minutes, maybe five. She said, that's too long. If you've meditated before, you need to be doing it for 10 seconds. Oh, wow. Okay. I think I could do 10 seconds. Excellent. That's a win. God, you've yeah. been through the wars, haven't you? Goodness me. I know, me. yeah. Goodness me. I, you know, I, I wanted to pick up on something you said. And, and this is, again, this is just, you can shout me down. I might be completely wrong. But one thing, and I'm not an expert, but one thing I've noticed is that, like you said, when people are feeling anxious, they do tend to be quite self-absorbed. And, and you're talking about more self-care. Is there any benefit in people in that situation focusing on helping other people as a form of therapy? Because does that, does that work in terms of sort of, you see, you know, focusing your attention on other people rather than yourself all the time? Or have I got that completely wrong? I think it probably really depends where your headspace is. When I have my anxiety, and sister said why don't you look after 
um, Joseph, my nephew, thinking that would be helpful, given that's where it started. It was never going to be helpful. <laughs> but I know what they were trying to do, but I, I wouldn't have had the capacity. So I think it would very much depend on headspace and where your space is. If you have capacity to think about somebody else, particularly animals, oh, yeah. really helpful. So a lot of um, a lot of input now is is going into therapy animals, whether that's dogs, cats, or, or horses. Um, you're just looking after it. They don't want anything from you. They're not expecting any conversation from you, and they really don't care what it is you're saying to them. And if you're somebody with anxiety, that's really important because you already think your thought process and the things you're saying don't make any sense. An animal really doesn't care about that. They just want to them. So you're not worrying about what people think of you and judging you and all that stuff when you're... you're Absolutely. It's, it's just something you don't need if you've already got some anxiety going on. Goodness. So basically, if, if, you, if you are having struggles with with the world today and you know all of that you know find and, and suffering with anxiety self-care so looking after yourself because I yes. guess a lot of people you know I'm thinking about some of the big people who've had um uh, depression a lady called Byron Katie for one she was so low and she wasn't focused she was felt unworthy of any sort of self-care and and she was focusing on everyone else so I can see that would be um would be important actually and then and then the second one was remind me again communication communication of course yeah Yeah. speaking club um (laughs) (laughs) what a wally (laughs) and and then mindfulness if you can do it yeah that was the i think my yeah mindfulness and meditation if you can do those things um definitely when i was anxious if somebody and when i am anxious if somebody suggests it it increases my anxiety so you have to be really, really aware. For me, when I'm working with clients, I have to be really aware. This is a tool, but that's all it is. Mm. Don't use it. If it's, if it's difficult, that's fine. We'll find something different for you. And, and that self-care is just that it's not a big thing. It, it might just be about reading your favorite book for 10 minutes. It, it's, it's just little things that we can do to look after ourselves. And you might say, again, this is something else that if someone had said to you at the time, You'd have probably, you might have thought of slapping them in the face. But um, they do also say, what I've heard, gratitude and being grateful is another way, of, sort of positivity is another way of improving your mental health. Is that true or is that? Yes, is yes, it is. So um, you have to do it for 30 days. Um, and within that gratitude journal, you would need to write three things you're grateful for. Um, and we're not talking big things. So we're not talking about amazing sunsets or or beautiful moons, or any of those things, we're just, it might just be that you're grateful that your Amazon parcel arrived when it should have arrived. It doesn't matter. It might be that you're grateful for the cup of coffee you had. But when we're looking, when we're being grateful for the good things that are happening in our life, we will see more good stuff happening in our life because we're looking out for it. We're more aware of it. But it is 30 days. You have to do it for 30 days for it to be useful. So it's kind of like those, um, the RAS filters, that reticular activation um, stuff where, where what you're focusing of, you see, focusing on, you see more of, basically. Absolutely, yeah. When you start, yeah. So um, one of the things I did for myself when I had my anxiety was I um, bought Susan Jeffers sort of affirmation seed. Oh. Um, it was a, to do with um, inner voice for a confident you. And I listened to it every day. So it was just positive affirmations. Um, I have to say, the first couple of days of listening to it, because I was listening with my conscious mind, I thought, what a load of rubbish this is. I'm really honest. However, I, I went with it and I listened to it every day. And after 30 days, I could really feel the difference. By about the second month, I was irritated by all of the negativity around me and all of the negative comments I was hearing around me. It, it just irritated me because I could I could see so much more positive. God, it sent you over the edge though, so you peaked. <laughs> well, I, I think I did peak. I should have stopped at some point. <laughs> but and I and I I'm really aware. I would say to my colleagues, "Oh, you need to listen to this CD because you're really negative, and this will really help you." <laughs> so yeah, started winding you up. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, the negativity arrived. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. I'll put a link to that um, if, if in the show notes as well, just in case yeah. anyone wants to have a listen to that. Now, we are in the speaking club, and yes. I know that you know it's a well-known fact. So many people have anxiety around public speaking, and I wanted to get some tips from you for people who were wanting to speak but where anxiety was stopping them from getting on stage or on video how would you if, if I came to you with that how would you handle it with me um, if I was feeling this way okay so I would probably be telling you it's not a quick fix unless I'm going to hypnotize you so I'm a hypnotherapist I don't practice it but I'm a hypnotherapist and um, hypnotherapy would be a much quicker route because we talk to the subconscious directly the thing with anxiety, the, the thing with our thinking pattern and our thought processes are we do that with our conscious. So if we think about going to do some live talking, whether that's to an audience of people or whether that's on Facebook Live or whatever that is, we think to ourselves, I can do this. And our conscious checks in with our subconscious and our subconscious will have a belief along the lines of, no, you can't, which comes back to our subconscious, our conscious rather, and we say, no, I can't do that. So the work I would want to do with somebody would be around what are your beliefs around this? What is stopping you? What are the, what's the worst that's going to happen? So a question I ask a lot of clients is what's the worst that's going to happen if you do that? And then we keep pushing beyond that point until we get to a belief. And then when we've got the belief, we can work on turning that around. So again, we do some work with the subconscious to retrain the brain in terms of how they then manage that belief and turn it around. So rather than saying, I can't do this, they change it into a belief of, I'll be okay to do this. So let's, so I, I struck, like I do stand-up comedy. I yeah. speak in front of large audiences, but as I, I've, I've talked about this on the show before, I still have this blooming big issue with Facebook Live. So how would you, so how would you, you'd say to me, what's, what, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, so what's the worst thing that's going to happen on a Facebook Live for you? I, I think... Uh, Basically, the, what I feel the worst thing is that I'll be talking to myself and no one's is completely pointless, no one's listening. Okay, and if no one's listening, what does that mean? Um, that uh, is what I'm saying is no one's, no one's hearing what I say is a complete waste of time. Okay, and if no one's hearing you and it's a waste of time, what does that say about you? Um, that, that I'm not worth listening to. Ah, that you're not worth listening to. Right. Okay. So that would be the, the belief, would it? Yeah. So somewhere in your childhood or at some point in your life, that belief will have been instilled within you. I'm not worth listening to. So then I would do the work around. Okay. So how do we change that belief into, I have something to say and I'm worth listening to. See, it only pops up in that thing. Is, is that like, does that happen to some people? Like they'll be all right, they'll be all right. And there's one thing and it just all sort of blossoms out in that thing yeah maybe it's because when you're doing your stand-up comedy you have an audience in front of you they have to listen to you because they're there because you're sat there you're stood there in front of them on a Facebook live there's nobody actually there so you don't know what's going on so suddenly it becomes unpredictable for you so it's a lack of control yeah yeah it's become unpredictable Interesting. And that's where anxiety then kicks in for you. On a Facebook Live, it's really uncertain. It's really unknown. It triggers within you that thought process of, I haven't got anything worth saying or people don't want to listen to me, which will trigger back to somewhere in earlier life for you. Cool. That's really interesting, isn't it? I've got to get over myself. I've got to do it. <laughs> I've started doing it. I just need to get over myself. Anyway, that's cool. So do you do, so have you got any more tips? So for, for people that are struggling is, I mean, is that one of them? You've just got to do it. So that won't work if you've got high anxiety, because it wouldn't have mattered what anybody had said to me when I had high anxiety. If they said, you just got to do it, they'd have got a smack. They'd have got something (laughs) helpful from me because I'd have been very much in a place of, but I can't, I can't do it. If you can get to what is my belief, what is the thing that I believe to be true here, um, and it's a negative belief, and there might be, if we really played around, two or three of those linked into the, the Facebook Lives, what I would say to do is 
we write down the opposite. So people are interested in listening to me. I do have interesting things to say or whatever that might be. What I say to people is do you record maybe three or four sentences. So it's a bit like positive affirmations. You record it three or four, three or four sentences, seven times. But so it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, seven times. You listen to that twice a day for 21 days. In doing that, you start to retrain your subconscious with a more positive belief system. So you're kind of priming your brain. Yeah, we're, we're getting the subconscious to change its belief. The subconscious only holds what it knows to be true, only holds what it's experienced and what it knows to be true, which is why I said your belief somewhere in your life that's happened to you. And so your subconscious holds that now as, as something that's true, whether it is or isn't. So we need to retrain it. We need to, to, to change that. When I've used that recording of uh, seven times for myself is around running. Um, so I do run, but I'm a lazy runner. Um, and my legs get tired very quickly. And so I stop very quickly. And I didn't really think it was an issue until I was running with my son one day. And I said, oh, my legs are tired. I need to stop. My legs are tired. And oh, no, I said, my legs hurt. And he said, where do they hurt? And I just looked at him and said, what do you mean? And he said, well, where do they hurt? And I went, oh, um, um, and he said, they don't hurt. You just don't want to do this. So I went away and I came up, I thought about what my negative beliefs were around running. I changed those into positive statements around, so not beliefs, because they weren't beliefs, but positive statements. I listened to it. Um, and then a couple of le- weeks later, when I went out for a run, I just really enjoyed it. And I ran and I didn't get tired and my legs didn't hurt because I had retrained my subconscious to a place of, actually, I enjoy running. And, and I, I was able to enjoy my running again without getting tired. It was just a retraining of a belief system I had in place. The belief system I had was I'm no good at sport. That belief system came from my PE teacher when I was in school. Gosh. I had to rechange it. So that's so interesting. So let me just kind of wrap, wrap that all up. So you, you keep peeling back the layer until you get to the belief. Yes. Then you replace, you, you have some opposites of that, some opposite yes. positive statements. Yes. You, yes. Record, you record yourself saying those about seven times. Yes. Listen for 21 days. Yes. And at the end of it, you can go and do a TED Talk. Well, you started. I'm yeah. joking. I'm joking. You started. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you could. I think you could. Because you started retraining. <laughs> I was just teasing. You can see. You're on the journey. You're on the journey, at least. Brilliant. And that, that, that's it, yeah. Thank you. That is so, that's such a gold there. I really appreciate you sharing that, that process. So that's really helpful. Now, do you do any public speaking yourself? I don't, actually. I do training. So I do a lot of training. Um, so I guess that's kind of public speaking to groups of, of people. But I don't do any actual public speaking. I've never been asked to. Oh, you should. You should definitely think about it. And I think you can't discount the training is public speaking. You know, yeah. this is public speaking. And you've definitely got some great things to, to share. But, um, you. you know, it, it depends if you need more clients for a start as well. But um, thank you so much for um, sharing all of that stuff today. Really appreciate it. Now, I've got some standard questions. Yeah. I ask all my guests. And we'll have to apply the first couple perhaps to the training side of it. Um, yes. So. What is the best thing that, I guess, speaking training has done for you? Um, it's given me confidence. That's what I would say. My, um, and this is totally not how to do it, but my very first experience of talking publicly was when a previous line manager, we were sat in front of a group of 80 school nurses. She was supposed to talk. She said, Colette's going to do the talking and just threw me in it. Um, and I did. And it was fine. But I would say, actually, what it has done is really build my confidence and self-worth. Brilliant. And have you had a bad training or speaking gig that comes to mind? Do you know, this sounds really arrogant, but I don't think I have. I get some really, really lovely feedback whenever I deliver a training. That's Um, brilliant. You get a pass anyway. You've got all that other stuff you've had. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I definitely think you should get out and do it more, especially if you're getting... Great feedback, Colette. That's yeah. cool. Okay, cool. Now, next question. What um, is the book 
that's had most impact on your life and why? Actually, the book that's probably had the most impact on my life was, um, it was a book called, I think it was A Piece of Cake by Cupcake Brown. It's definitely by Cupcake Brown. Um, And it's her life story. So she was brought up in the care system in America, um, had a horrific start to life, but is now a judge or has been a judge. Um, So it's kind of her journey. and, And so it's difficult to read because it's, it's, it's very gang talk because that's how she was raised. But I have never felt so inspired by a book in my life than when I read that book. Oh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I will definitely check that out. That sounds yeah. that sounds brilliant. Gosh. And I sent her um, a message and she replied and that was really lovely. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. She, she sounds like she's a nice, nice person as well. Yeah, I think she, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Okay. Um, next question, what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? The best bit of business advice I've had was, uh, it was about money. And it was about putting my money into pots so that every week I sit down, I take a bit out for my drawings, a bit out for the tax man, a bit out for profit um, and a bit out for the business. It's been what saved my business because when I got my tax bill, the money was just sitting there to pay it. When I need time off work, I've got some money put aside for that. Um, so it was a really simple piece of advice, um, but it, it completely saved me and my business from a, from a financial point of view, which is obviously essential. That's what God, it's so that's a brilliant piece of advice. I fell into that trap the first time when I had a limited company. You like you get all confused. Absolutely, yeah. really, really brilliant piece of advice there. Yeah. Smashing. Um, and the last question. If you could pick any uh, mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm not sure. Do you know, I, I actually think, I think it would be my old manager, uh, the lady who I said pushed me out in front of those school nurses. Um, she was from New Zealand and had a very different ethos to the one that us British people have. So she absolutely believed in me, no shadow of a doubt at all. She absolutely grew me as a person and she did it all so subtly, I didn't know she was doing it. So she'd absolutely be the person I'd want as, as a mentor if I could have her back. Brilliant. And was she the one that helped you when you're in your dark place as well? Was that someone else? No. Yeah, so no, that was so I've been really lucky with manager. Yeah, definitely. Goodness me. So, right, listen, if people want to work with you um, or get you to speak or to train um, and you do stuff over Zoom. So we have an international audience on the speaking club. So it could be someone, um, uh, you do stuff over Zoom, don't you? So they could work nationally. Yes, yeah. Um, Where is the best place that they could get hold of you, Colette? So I've got two two businesses. So I do two different streams of work. One of those is is um, www.smallstepscounsellingservice.com. So they can get hold of me through my website, either on a contact form or through Facebook. Um, They can email me. Um, And then my other business is a lot around parenting work where I work with parents who've got children with uh, additional needs such as autism or anxiety. Um, and that business is uh, www.childbehaviorsolutions.co.uk. So if anyone wants to get hold of you for counselling, um, for anxiety or depression or phobias or anything like that, that's smallstepscounsellingservices.com. Yeah. And on the other side, for parents with children who have autism or stuff going on like that, yeah. that again is www.childbehaviorsolutions.co.uk. And are you on social media, Colette? I'm, I am on social media. I'm on Facebook. So I have a Facebook page for each of those um, businesses. And for the child behaviour uh, Facebook page, there is a link to a private group for parents who want to be able to talk in confidence or ask questions um, in confidence without having to go through a messaging service. So it's a secret group. That's great. Well, I'll put links to both of those websites uh, and the Facebook pages on the show notes as well. Listen, thank you so much, Colette. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. I've I've learned stuff and uh, about myself as well. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> and um, you, you, you are lovely, and um, I can see why people want to work with you. Um, you, are, you. You are, you are, you certainly come across as a rare sunshine uh, today, if not before. So, thank you thank again you. for your time and and all of the great stuff that you shared. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that. I obviously still have some baggage to work on myself. Um, if you found that useful, please go and say hello to Colette and let her know. As ever, thank you so much for joining me and for choosing The Speaking Club to listen to. I've got a special episode coming next week and some amazing guests booked to come on the show. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And lastly, if you do enjoy the show, I would love it if you could. Please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And all that's left for me to say is, as usual, have a fantastic week. Keep safe, stay at home. And remember, if you want some help to master speaking online, then book your space on the Five Secrets Live Masterclass at saraharcher.co.uk slash five as in the word and secrets and you'll be able to grab your speaking online by the nuts and get cracking. Take care. Bye-bye. You don't need to waste more time searching for an answer when the most powerful tools to becoming a great speaker and growing your business are already in your possession. Your stories. The trouble is that many people believe that either they haven't got a story to tell or that you need to be a natural-born storyteller to use them successfully. But neither of these things are true. Everyone has stories, and I want to help you discover yours and share them more powerfully with my new freebie, My Story Wizard. In three steps, it's going to guide you to find your stories, power them up with humour and other tricks, and share them in a way that connects with your audience and sells your thing. If that sounds good to you, then head over to mystorywizard.com and go and grab yours right now.